Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. Uh, the conversation on today's version of Why Make is going to be with sculptors, turners, furniture makers, and teachers, Melissa Angler and Graham Priddle. Uh, Rob, you went to school with Melissa Angler, right? You both went to Haywood. Um, I think we might have just overlapped at Haywood, but she is a graduate of, of Haywood Community College, and after she attended uh, UNCA Asheville uh, for a sculpture degree. Um, so she kind of did the the reverse of getting the bigger degree and then getting the smaller degree like I did, like you did as well. Yes, the uh, the, the reverse degree, I like the that. The reverse the, degree. You know, you get your undergraduate degree and then you get an associate's. Yeah, yes, and her, her partner Graham is uh, um, a New Zealand native that is uh, recently transplanted to the United States, and um, he's a, a self-taught wood turner and sculptor. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna sit down and 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 talk with them about collaboration and uh, the kind of sculpture that they're making now. So here's our here's our conversation with Melissa Engler and Graham Priddle. Sounds All good. Let's go. Sure, you know how to work out this partnership in terms of who speaks first. So, where'd you guys grow up, and and Let's what was your first Kiwi accent, Graham? <laughs> what was uh, what was your what was your out. earliest inspiration to make? What was your earliest memory of actually making something? Um, high school art classes where I would um, cut out from language classes and hide in the art room because I wasn't very academic, or maybe I was. I just didn't want to be. So, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed art much more than Latin and French, mm -hmm. and I guess I kind of got directed by my parents into a more academic yeah. kind of track at high school, hoping for, that I'd go to university and become an accountant or something. I've been a big disappointment in their lives, but... Um, so there were no other artists, no, no, other, no other people doing creative stuff in your family? No, I didn't, I, I no. Your dad with the plastic stuff. He was a manufacturer, plastics manufacturer. He was an inventor. He was inventor, he'd make machines, and yeah. he was always well, a... doing stuff, building houses, fixing the car. I never saw tradespeople come into our house, so he was a, like a doer. But he's always doing stuff with always his Always doing hands, stuff right? with his yeah. hands. Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. the kernel of making, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's why he wanted me to be an accountant, so that I could do that for him and his business. So he, he could didn't keep want on to making. And, exactly. you could, and you could uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep so, track of the money while yeah, he's making it. Yeah, yeah. He, he hated That's... the business side of things, but he loved making things. So yeah. I grew up with a maker and a doer, and I've always loved working with my hands. I ended up being a, uh, you know, at high school, art was I was allowed to do art as a reward if I did all the other academic things they wanted me so to do. So they teased you with they art. They teased me with art. <laughs> oh. But it was never anywhere in my consciousness that art could actually be a job. Yeah or a career path or anything like that, no way. And so I kind of got out of high school, first opportunity, 16 years old, dropped out, left home, wanted to join the Navy just to get out. And I ended up getting into a radio technicianing job in New Zealand with mm -hmm. the government telecommunications. So and is, that was a doing job, that was making. Yeah, so getting, what, is, what is, I mean, I don't think a radio technician is a job that exists anymore, is it? N well, it is, but you're more of a systems analyst now. Right, okay. So, so it got to that point for me after 12 years doing it. Initially, I was working in HF radio, which is, you know, vacuum tubes and 
big transmedicine things you can yeah. walk around inside and just um, you always got your soldering iron out you're building uh, and back in the day when I trained you didn't just get trained on how to build the electronics you got trained on how to build the case to put it in and mount all the bits and build the circuit boards so I got a pretty comprehensive training at a very remote um, ship to shore radio station so because it was so remote we had to do everything even sewage treatment plant maintenance and stuff right. like that oh, wow. so I got a really broad training comprehensive and then it got into just black box stuff computers and throwaway so you drive two hours to the top of a mountain and pull a card out throw it in the bin plug in another one and drive home again so and that oh, was wow. the beginning of the end the of beginning of the end yeah hung up the soldering iron and and then also uh, the government department got taken over, privatized back in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. AT&T came in, lovely oh. company, yeah. um, who figured out the best way to get more profit was lay off staff and leave the existing ones to do more. Um, so I could see the writing on the wall that job satisfaction wasn't going to be what it had been under the New Zealand government. And also they were pressuring me to go into a management role. Um, no, no. Even just sitting at this desk here right now. Kinda. Yeah, you don't. Have <laughs> <laughs> you, you been turning all along, or you had no? You had, you had never, to turn a never, thing in that twelve yeah, years of your yeah. your career as a radio technician. Yeah. So earlier, uh, like when I had my first child, I bought a table saw and some power tools and mm -hmm. a stack of wood and built some wooden bunks, and that was my after like just wood shop at school. That was my first kind of making experience. Yeah. So out of necessity for your family. Yeah, I think my mum gave me a, like a wood project book for Christmas. Yeah. And it was a project for building bunks. I thought, oh, that'll be cool. Um, and I was working at this radio station doing shift work. So I had, you know, days off that I could mm -hmm. mess around in the basement and started playing with wood. And it, it was fascinating watching wood grain appear as you sand it and then oil it. And it was just a... a wonderful experience and then I saw some furniture that I loved um, the company I worked for uh, the telecommunications industry started offering redundancies took the money and ran bought a hundred acres of rainforest Wow um, and decided to be a woodworker so um, originally freeform furniture I'd seen some amazing like driftwood furniture that I liked mm -hmm. and also my kids were really young then I had three like preschool kids or one just at school and I was missing out being a tech on the road all the time and doing call hours missing out on time with my kids so I decided to opt for lifestyle and um, work from home originally furniture but this was late 80s stock market crash not that good met a guy doing amazing furniture that I wanted to study with and he told me forget it <laughs> <laughs> he was working on the farm next door to this property I bought building shade houses and plastic houses for horticulture because he couldn't make a living off selling furniture yeah. at that point. It's hard to make a living in New Zealand as an artist. Anytime. But well, when, they're when the worldwide economy tanks, it's even worse. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I, I got to yeah. admit, I'm interested in the whole concept of growing up on an island as well. I mean, is there... Three islands. Well, three, sorry, three islands. Don't ask about koalas. Just don't. I, I, that wasn't even a thought. Aren't they over on the other big island? We have them yeah, for yeah. breakfast. We call it the West Island. The West Island. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I, it's, so it's a small economy. It is. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to make a living in any of the arts. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a small place. Pure. 
which is why I started coming here 20 years ago to teach, is because I could not make a full-time living down there. You do okay flogging bowls during summer when the tourists are in town. Yeah. You don't but, want to flog bowls forever. No, yeah. but it was kind of like, that's why I went there and actually started wood turning. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of thought wood turning was just salad bowls and chair legs. Mm -hmm. And when this furniture <laughs> guy said to me, you know, forget furniture right now, but if you want to be a woodworker and actually feed your family off it, you should meet these guys I know. They're wood turners. Check these guys out. Yeah. Oh, so, so that was did, the initial inspiration? So who did, yeah. who did he tell you to check out? Well, it was um, um, one of New Zealand's top wood turners, Albie Hall, okay. uh, Rolly Munro, John Ecuia, uh, Tom Capey, Shane Hewitt. Uh, it was a little group. There was a local woodturning club. Like yeah. when he, he said, you, you should meet these woodturners, I said, no, I don't want to make salad <laughs> bowls and chair legs. That sounds boring. Then <laughs> lay they down and say, heck no. He says, no, 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 come with me to this meeting. You know, we all just meet, meet at this guy's club. It was called the Whangarei Studio Woodturners Guild. It was an offshoot from the local woodturning club. It was about six or eight guys that were more what they called studio woodturners rather mm -hmm. than production turners. They were doing really creative stuff. That's, that's it. And it blew me away. The first time I went to this guy's house, they were playing a video of an American turner, David Ellsworth, mm -hmm. who lives in Asheville now. Yeah, Weaverville, actually. Yeah. Oxford Creek Road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where I used to live out there. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And so the first yeah. thing I see when I walk into this wood turner's meeting, it was really just a bunch of guys getting together and drink beer and tell lies. And mm -hmm. That sounded pretty good. Um, and there's this video of David Ellsworth sitting on this lathe, making these big hollow forms. And yeah. they say, yeah, this, this dude, he travels the world. and sells his work for thousands of dollars in all these big galleries. And I'm going, hmm, didn't know wood turning could be like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll sign up. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, that's curious. Because, I, I mean, I haven't turned much, but the thing I liked about wood turning versus furniture making was just the immediacy of it. Exactly. I mean, it can take mm. weeks to make a piece of furniture, but you can jump on a lathe and get something from your mind's eye to the finished object in a matter of hours. Yeah. And there's, there's a real yeah. beauty in that. And there's something magic about watching those curves develop oh. from a handheld tool. It just like happens before your eyes and the shavings yeah. fly. Seeing and that square stock come in. Yeah, do, it's kind of like instant yeah. gratification. And so, the feeling when you're actually mastering the tool, just that beautiful cutting of the grain. I mean, well, it's hard yeah. to stay in that sweet spot. Right. I can tell you that for certain. <laughs> <laughs> Graham and I were talking, I never got to the mastering of the um, tools. It but was, it's a it glorious like, thing when even if you feel it for a moment. I'm, I'm going to start feeling it soon. I got my first lathe two months ago. Excellent. Yeah, awesome. so, well, it, yeah. for me, it was two weeks solid like one yeah. of the guys in this little group lent me a lathe um i just bought the tools i was told to buy five basic tools mm -hmm. and just started turning and two weeks of sheer frustration yeah and hell before suddenly there was that epiphany ah that's how a bevel works all of a sudden you f felt yeah you feel the that you, you learn the bevel control yeah. Right, uh, and that's the secret. It's just understanding that one principle of how a bevel guides a, a cutting edge. Right. Uh, so it was it was magic, and inspired by these guys, I thought, yeah, I want to do this crazy arty wood turning stuff, and made a few attempts at that, and rejected big time, slammed in the press, all that stuff. <laughs> Who's this new guy on the scene? Think he is? Like, Man. <laughs> oh well, I guess I'll. I'm not going to feed my family off doing this. I'll make salad bowls. So I made salad bowls for ten years while 
10% of my time going towards developing the more creative things and mm -hmm. figuring out that stuff. Somebody has to eat salad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Lots of people. Yeah. But the, something that I thought I would absolutely hate, I absolutely loved because mm -hmm. it becomes kind of like a meditative thing. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. And, and, and you gain incredible tool skills that then just help you do the more complex stuff later on. So I grew up in the Canadian Rockies, um, right outside of Banff National Park, which is uh, just an incredibly beautiful bit of the world, very wild. Um, I grew up with two kind of wild parents who were actually <laughs> both artists and outdoors people. Oh, wow. So wow. Yeah, whenever, I mean, it's such a common story, right, to hear, oh, well, my parents didn't want me to do this, or they didn't think that art was valuable, and mm -hmm. I had sort of the opposite experience, so I feel really lucky for that. So that place still inspires a huge amount of my work, and not just the Canadian Rockies, but wildness in general. Yeah. Um, conservation, things like this. It's something that Graham and I talk a lot about is wanting to tell a story with our work, and that's part of what got me out of furniture making, actually, yeah. was I love making furniture and I love the craftsmanship in it. Um, I love everything that I learned from Haywood and I'm so grateful for it. you're going with this too. Yeah, you, maybe you've had the same sort of feeling. It's hard to tell a story with a piece of furniture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can it's, tell the story of like a line or a form or yeah. trying to do something different. Yeah. Um, I, I find that it's so vague and yes. so, yeah. yes. you know, you really got to explain the piece to them. If it's yeah, a, yeah, right. And also like the things that I've seen, ugh, I don't want to offend anybody here. Who knows who I'll offend if it's <laughs> no. the furniture sometimes that I've seen that is trying to tell that story mm -hmm. isn't really doing anything for the story or the furniture. It's just like separate the two and enjoy yourself like with yeah. one or the other. Yeah. I'm not saying there haven't been successful yeah. efforts I mean, in that, that regard. Was a, that it's was hard. a transition I tried to make because <clears throat> actually I, Brent Skidmore across the hall invited me to do a show in Charlotte probably 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've always been seeking a way to put a narrative into my work. Mm -hmm. So I started doing a series of torso cabinets in which I applied digital images of my childhood on them as a way of trying right. to yeah, tell yeah. that story. Yeah. I mean, they were horrid. I mean, they were, they were expressive <laughs> cabinets, but they were hardly functional. Yes. And I felt like I was trying to impose a function on a piece of narrative sculpture. And Perfect. that's ultimately what led me to just pure sculpture. It's but, funny because Brent Skidmore was actually the catalyst for the point in my life which I made the transition as well. So I didn't know you had a similar <laughs> story. But um, I, I ran into Brent's work at, at uh, Blue Spiral before yeah. I came. I came and spent the, a couple of nights in the mountains. So it hit me too. I've got a picture of me and an ex-girlfriend standing in front of a Skidmore mirror and I'm like, Amazing. Look. Yeah, amazing. and it is amazing. I love his work, but mm. I actually had like he was helping me work on my um, graduate show for UNC Asheville. Yeah, and I was doing a series of cabinets, and I was there were about like the natural world and the connections between things, and mm -hmm. you know how we're destroying it and all that good stuff. And I was making these um, very sculptural, detailed little handles for the mm -hmm. cabinets and kind of showing him samples of that. And some, uh, Brent just tweaked to the fact that I was actually loving that way more than I was loving making these cabinets. And he told <laughs> yeah. me that. He was like, what, what are you liking? What is the thing that's really exciting you about this? The so handles or the like, cabinets? Your handles look like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So they started I've out. Seen, I've seen yep. pictures of them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and he was the one that kind of just made me real. And he gave me permission. He said, you know, you can just do that, right? 
my candles like, the rest you can of your just life. make <laughs> these sculptural forms you don't have to have it attached to a function and that was huge for me um yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's awesome right yeah what was your earliest remembrance of making something um so i remember like my mom and dad both just took me around doing things with them they were both doers as well you know being out in the yard my dad was always building little fences or we'd be out in the woods or at a creek or a waterfall and he'd build like this cool kind of wood and stone bridge across he was from switzerland i guess that's something they do regularly in switzerland oh, <laughs> it's a mountain guide from switzerland who's <laughs> always doing stuff like that so that was just sort of part of my growing up and cool. then they would encourage i mean so we'd be building little karens or there was always something you weren't just sitting in the woods mm -hmm. having a picnic you'd be doing stuff and making stuff right. um and then I, one of my earliest childhood memories that I have of actually making something was being in my aunt's kitchen in the Catskills. They had a cabin in the woods um, and she was making a salad and I was taking all the little carrot butts and random things and I made this whole like little village out of vegetable scraps. <laughs> I know, cool. it's like a weird little memory of mine, but that's the first time I remember like arranging things, which mm -hmm. I think is a big part of what well, my making has become. Things. Yeah, you're yeah. arranging lots of exactly. pieces and parts. Yeah. And, and arranging the relationships parts. between yeah. maybe disparate elements. Yeah. You know, the, the carrots to the celery. Exactly. I mean, the color, the form. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make it work? They could get on well. Right? I'm not saying they it was a good that vegetable village. the carrots and the celery. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, just things like that. And it was always part of who I was allowed to be and, and the people that I was around all the time, which was pretty amazing. My dad um, was a photographer, and my mom did painting. Um, and again, just that love of the natural world. Yeah, the natural like world is something sacred. They fostered it. Totally. Um, something wow. that needs to be protected. And yeah. yeah. It was sort of like religion, spirituality in That's my family awesome. was, was those connections. So how'd you land at, at well, I guess UNC, UNCA Asheville, but um, anything in high school kind of happened that really, hmm. you know, kind of pushed you even further into woodworking or furniture? Or? Well, I dropped out. Did that help? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's <laughs> <laughs> one thing we have in common, yeah. with high school dropouts. <laughs> Uh, so you dropped I out guess, of high school. Yeah, okay. actually it was just yeah. like in the middle of my senior year yeah, for yeah. weird reasons that aren't even worth mentioning here. But I, so when my parents split up, we moved to Hendersonville, mm -hmm. um, my mom and sister and I. And the, the education that we were given there was fine, but it, I mean, we had art classes. Yeah. Um, but I don't really remember it being anything mind-blowing or challenging yeah. or... Uh, yeah, so I so mean, I remember taking art classes and liking doing things in art yeah. classes. So but they split when you were just getting out of high school, like 17, 18 years old? No, actually, I was oh. 11 when oh, we wow. moved down okay. here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my sister was five. So, so yeah, not so much in high school, but yeah. I guess getting out of school, mm, it's funny. My, my art story doesn't really start until a decade after. I just spent a lot of time... I don't even know what I was doing yeah. for that 10 years, to be honest. You can't Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not so much sex. But that, but that doing, doing whatever and, and having a, just a being good a wanderer. time or a hard time. And yeah, search, Traveling. you're searching. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, a lot of the things that I was doing during that time are still part of 
who I am and who oh, we are. Yeah, it's, it was all about just being open to new experience, mm-hmm. um, not telling stories so much, but being a part of a story. Yeah. You know, I did a lot of traveling, lived a lot of places, um, always pretty minimally, yeah. minimalist lifestyle, sort of living out of your suitcase, which is <laughs> a huge part of our lives now. Mm-hmm. So um, it all, it well, all we'll kind of circles back we, around. Yeah. We're interested in the, the, yeah. the, 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 the minimal aspect of... Mm, yeah, I like that you guys had that question in um, mind because that's so the you're So you're doing this for that amount of time, whatever, discovering, and you end up at, at UNCA. Yeah, UNCA first. How did I decide? Oh, I kind of got tired of just wandering around after mm-hmm. a while. It's like, what am I doing with my yeah, life? Yeah. Like, this has been fun, but I guess maybe I was... 24, 25, mm-hmm. and I dropped out around 17. So maybe it wasn't a full decade, but it was enough. Yeah. And the thing that I guess I was missing was uh, when you're hanging out with a bunch of people that work in restaurants and doing nothing but mm-hmm. drinking beer and yeah. other stuff. The, 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 restaurant, <laughs> the restaurant culture is a hard life. You get old fast. Yeah. And like you start to kind of want for intelligent, educated discussions and opinions mm-hmm. and... Um, I think that's what got me back into You're school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just kind of became not enough after a while. I just yeah. didn't want to like have this party life. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn about stuff and know about stuff. Right. And did you start an art at UNCA, or that was something you found after you got there? No, I, I was actually kind of trying to decide between art and Spanish, and I took mm-hmm. them both for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the traveling and just yeah, interest in yeah. other cultures, and it's a beautiful language. <laughs> I mean, I still at some point would like to follow through with that. But um, I, again, it's one of those things where I was trying out both and deciding what actually made me the happiest. And I was in classes, in sculpture classes at UNCA, and that was the only time that things would just fade away. Like no concept of time, no um, worries or thoughts just so engrossed in this project yeah. that you were meditating making mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah exactly and so as far off as it seemed at the time to consider actually making a career out of it because at that time i was imagining sculpture like the yeah. fine art world of sculpture yeah. who the hell actually makes it in the fine art world of sculpture you know it's a hard i mean people do but it's yeah. really hard there's One a few 10, that raise <laughs> up to the top and make a living yeah. at it and so it seemed um not terribly realistic, but I knew that it's what I loved doing, and yeah. I just decided to pursue it. I'm really, really glad I did in hindsight, and I'm amazed at how well it's worked out. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Actually, this is a very interesting, because Nick and I were talking about this before, in terms of in other societies, other societies meaning other democracies other than the United States, support for the arts, because we were talking about mm, like, like things Europe, like the National Film Board French, of Canada. Yeah. 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 Incredible yeah. amount exactly. of films yeah. never get made yeah. in the United yeah. States. In the same New Zealand Film Commission, we have the same thing. So because we're kind of more of a socialist kind of um, Yay, socialism. Mental- yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely going to get kicked out. <laughs> Still on a so, green card. I'm not a citizen yet. Social what? <laughs> Socializing. Social, social, social activities. Social activities. Yeah. So, so that is a very valid point that in Commonwealth countries we have a lot more support uh, governmentally for the arts. Yes, artists do have value. They do. Right. That, did you know? Yeah. Did you know that in Holland, artists actually get a stipend? 
from the government to really? be artists. Really? They do. They get a weekly wage from the government just I'm to be... moving over, in a month. I know. Mm, I have a really potter friend who wow. came to New Zealand from the Netherlands and she used to get paid to be a potter in the Netherlands. That's so, wild. So, yeah, no, that's not wild. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> oh, I mean. And you know, Japan, artists are national treasures. Yeah. You know, yeah. the thing is, it's... it's I mean... Yeah, anyway, I that's digressing. In, yeah. 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 I think, I think we digress. So you're, a whole you're, other podcast about that. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, so I applied yes. for a grant. I got a grant to attend this conference. Uh, and also around the same time as when Michael Hoselick started that Emma Lake thing, the collaboration conference. And I heard that he had started it. So I wrote him a letter and said, hey, can I come? He says, yeah, sure. So I got a grant to fly to the States, do the Greensboro conference. And then I traveled for five weeks, bought a car little cheap car and yeah. drove up to Canada, northern Saskatchewan. So, um, uh, this is how we met. No, <laughs> but anyway, so I started coming so we're gonna, here. We're going to get back to that because I, actually, just yeah. To, so just I started to, coming here to, to these conferences, and I've been coming pretty well every year since. So four years ago, the AW conference was in Phoenix, Arizona, mm -hmm. and I went to that. And at all these conferences, they have a big instant gallery where you put your work out and yeah. hopefully sell a few pieces. And at that point, Melissa was working right here at Grovewood Gallery. Yeah. Because she needed a real job <laughs> to support her making life. We've all done it. Um, so <laughs> that she was, was right out of Haywood. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Melissa was managing the furniture kind of upstairs mm -hmm. at Grovewood there. So Melissa came to the Phoenix Symposium with the gal one of the gallery owners. Um, Harry, Harry um, to hunt down suppliers for the wood room there. Mm -hmm. So she had a list of names of people that she wanted to visit with and see if they would supply Grovewood. And I was mm -hmm. kind of on that list. And another little side turn to that is that Dan Essig, are you familiar with Dan yeah, Essig, the bookmaker? Yeah, he was, wasn't he here? Yeah, he, he was, was upstairs. Yeah, his book art. Yeah. yeah. And amazing I'd, fish. I've known <laughs> yeah, Dan another amazing for maker. 15 years through teaching together at Aramont and places like yeah, that. And yeah. me and Dan had kind of formed a friendship over the years. I'd never got to visit him here. But when Melissa was working at the gallery, she was using Dan's studio, doing some work for Dan in mm -hmm. return for studio space to work on her own stuff. So we had that connection. So Melissa hunted me down in the instant gallery um, to see if I'd supply Grovewood. And then there was, I think, a banquet dinner that night. And so I'm just sitting at a table at the banquet dinner with you know, a bunch of old woodturner guys. You know, it's the profile of woodturning. 65. Old white guys in hats. <laughs> um, and this um, lovely young thing bounces up to my table with a beer in hand and puts a beer in front of me. He says, Dan asked me to buy you a beer. I thought, wow, that's a good start. <laughs> um, we had met briefly, I think, the night before. No, we'd only met in the Instant Gallery. Yeah, that's what I mean, just yeah. briefly. Yeah, we'd yeah. talked in the Instant Gallery. Yeah. Um, and then that evening after the banquet, a friend of mine, a well-known uh, Bin Fo, since passed yeah. away last year. Oh, I'm sorry. Very, very dear friend. Oh. This is hard yeah. to, I'm not going to talk about them because mm. I'll cry. Yeah. Um, very, very dear friend, and he was having a party in his room that night. And in, at the banquet, I knew Melissa and Harry didn't really know anybody in town except John Hill. Um, and so I invited Melissa and Harry to go to the party at Bin's room. 
And so she came along and it was at that party that she showed me her website. I didn't realize she was a maker at that point. And she showed me her website and I read her artist statement, which is again that inspiration from the natural world and mm -hmm. care of our precious places in the world. And it really struck a chord with me because most of my work is about the same thing, but more marine environments rather than rocky environments. So. Um, I kind of fell in love with her then. And then we stayed in touch through me supplying the gallery and some I shows was that were coming <coughs> married up. at the time. Melissa was married. That was the fly <laughs> in the ointment. She was married. Don't call David a fly. <laughs> <laughs> no, the fact that there was the ring was the yes, fly. The, okay, the ring yeah. was the fly. But I was very respectful of that. Emma Lake or uh, the AAW brought you all together. It did. So and that's I community. That's, yeah, that's getting yeah. back to this community Absolutely. thing. Yeah. This has been my community. I have yeah. more community and friends in the woodworking world than, than any other world. It's pretty amazing. That's part of world. what my Haywood experience was too. I was realizing that that's really where I found my tribe. Yeah. Or what, you know, yeah. All of us are part and, of that again, tribe. You know, I, yeah. I think this, this podcast is a part of About that. being a contributor to this community. Yeah. Yeah. But, so I want to get into this whole notion of collaboration because I am fascinated by it. I have had a, a couple of unsuccessful attempts at collaborating with other artists and somewhat successful attempts, but I'm interested in your, your, your guys' collaboration with each other and the whole notion of collaboration. So you mentioned Emma Lake. Emma Lake is probably this luminary place in the world of collaboration. Because and Michael Hoslick started it. Mm -hmm. It's with and, friends. With, and, with friends. Yeah. And, yeah. and Emma Lake is always. I've always heard about it, but I don't really know about it. Can you explain Emma Lake in a nutshell? Well, the the history of it started off with Michael Hoslick bringing in well-known woodworkers to Saskatchewan. If anybody knows where Saskatchewan is. Northern it's the Canada. Paris of the prairies. Yeah. <laughs> Paris of the prairies, that's right. Yeah. Saskatoon in particular, which is actually a very arty town, great university there. Um, so he started bringing in demonstrators to teach wood turning up there. And it got to a point one time they invited a demonstrator to come up. Everything was lined up and set up and something happened and the demonstrator couldn't make it at the last minute. So all the woodworkers in Saskatoon are <laughs> sitting around. They're all there. Going, Ugh. They're, they're at the party yeah. and yeah. nothing happened. Yeah. So, um, so they decided just, well, let's just all start making stuff and just start, start <laughs> entertaining ourselves. So it was never put together with any intent. So, it's so no, it was, it, a, it, yeah. it was and, a remedy and, of a situation. Exactly. <laughs> but just like everything we do, we just fall from situation to situation. Oh, yeah. so, so how do the collaborations work? I mean, I'm just curious. So it, many levels. Yeah. So, and, and it's really is one of the hardest things to do in the world and in terms of making things is to collaborate with another person and to actually come up with something that I kind of... No, I don't know. I don't. I don't like to use the term true collaboration because there's so many different levels that yeah. you can collaborate yeah. at. But to come up with something that's just not one person yeah. embellishing what somebody else so made, or not two disparate two disparate things, things or, or like, whatever. Yeah. Well, ultimately, in the end, it has to work though. It has to be a visual whole. It does. I mean, two people, or I mean, do more than two people work on a project at MLA? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, Sometimes like, you have one project that everybody in the camp, and that's 80 to 100 people work on. Oh my gosh. So, so things like the, the, the classic is there's always a couple of projects where 
somebody will, uh, just a basic example, Mikey one day cut out a whole bunch of little wooden squares, three inches by three inches, square by half an inch thick. Mm -hmm. He gave one to every person at the conference, said, do a self-portrait. <laughs> and that was it, and walked away. And it's like, uh-huh. What? And so you <laughs> could carve it, you could paint it, you could do whatever you want, do whatever you want with it. And wow. then at the end, he collected them all up and put them all on a board as a big collage, and that was a, a finished piece. And it was all very dis, dis, disparate. Yeah, disparate. Every, every yeah. item was unique, but when they all came together as a whole, there were so many of them, it became a, a, a Did unit. anybody think about how they got put together, or they were just randomly There's put usually the somebody that kind of brings no, it back yeah. around to something that sort yeah. of works. If you instigate that, pro, that, that uh, project, you make you the pieces, you hand home. them all out, and then you have to spend probably a day going around and hassling people have you done that yet? I yeah. need it back by this day, this time. And then at that day, that time, you've physically got to go around and take it off people's yeah. benches or say, nah, you didn't, you didn't get it, you're out. Uh, and then it's that person's responsibility oh, so to, there's a, to, there's a, to put it together as a as So there's item. a referee for each project? Is that a fair word? No, there's no referee. Not, not a ref. Although, if it's gonna make it there's a facilitator. As a finished piece there's a in the end. There's a coordinator. coordinator. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But and you just things said it. don't get finished. I mean, there's a lot of like half finished oh, well, things sure. that come out of these events and they just, they sit somewhere. <laughs> and then maybe the next year people will take it up or. Yeah. But. So at the end of every event, there's a lot of oh, yeah. art made and yeah, random course. things that got missed or people, you know, it's absolute making madness is the only way I can describe it. But I'm, right. but I'm sure some of the, f I mean, I've seen a couple of pieces on the internet that have gotten finished and I'm like, there's some very cool That's things yeah. that go yeah. on. It is. Yeah. And you know, the first, the first one I went, I spent my first two days canoeing on the lake mm -hmm. because it was so intimidating and scary. Oh, wow. And like, I, I was nobody from New Zealand, this right. little boy oh, from yeah. the bush in New Zealand. And I arrive at Emma Lake, the first one in 96, and there's the who's who of the wood turning world there. Els, well, I don't think Ellsworth was there. I thought he said he was. He came to a later one. But all the big names that I'd only seen in magazines and whatever, and wow. a couple I'd met at the conference in Greensboro, yeah. but I didn't know anybody. Oh, wow. Yeah, that'd um, be intimidating. <laughs> and it was very intimidating. Um, so the biggest thing I got out of it was overcoming fear. After two days, somebody dragged me in and made me do something. Somebody actually dragged you in and said, yeah. you're going to join us and make something. Yeah. There's people that and do I'd, that. I'd um, paid to, to go to that event. So it's the kind of event they invite a bunch of people but if you're invited and funded to go there, you've got some expectation of performing and making and you know hanging out, and doing stuff with other people. If you pay to go to the event, you can pretty well just wander around and watch if you want. You've paid your dues. You yeah. know, you, you 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 don't owe them anything. Mm -hmm. It's always been the most amazing thing to me with this collaborative uh, concept is that some of the most amazing makers in the world, not just in wood, but in everything, will give up a week of their time for no pay. Um, you never really get all your costs covered going to it. And then at the end of the week, everything you made, you just give away to mm -hmm. the event to cover the cost. And it's amazing how many people support that concept. And uh, So it taught me a lot about why I make things yeah. and giving up, not being too precious about what I make, making something and passing it off to somebody. Yeah.
sitting here, I'm looking at your 2019 schedule, <laughs> and there's almost no white on your calendar. I mean, yeah. there's more when, white than usual, actually. That's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot here. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you manage that whole work-life balance? How do you how do you find time to work when you're constantly on the road? Mm. Well, we're not constantly on the road. Through the summer, a lot of the summer we are. Mm -hmm. um, but we also get downtime, like between teaching um, events, that we get back here and we might have a week and we make. But like this is probably the most. This winter has been the most biggest. That doesn't, that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter. We can't. We can't sport props. Sport properly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the biggest period of time we've had to actually just be in the studio here. Oh, wow. uh, a whole week. Part, well, no, we've been here for a couple of months. We've oh, been in town months. for months. Oh, yeah, months. so oh, okay. like November, December, January, we've been here, and oh, wow. we were just working away. Yeah. And of course, like we say yes to shows, and so that always, even if we only have two weeks to pull it off, we said yes to the show, yeah. and we're going to work like mad for that two weeks to get yeah. this workout. And yeah. so this it is happens. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But the, but the beautiful. thing is, you've got you know, if you want to make a living, it's really hard just to make it off what you make. Right. So the teaching is vital for us in that you do the work, you get paid. Right. What, a, what a novel notion. I know. <laughs> Whereas, you, know you make something you and you put it out in a gallery years and today. it might sell. Or if it does sell, you might get paid. Um, <laughs> might be. Yeah. I've had some bad experiences. Um, so it, it, it's having... You've, you've got to have that thing that pays the bills. Yeah. And we, I mean, well, I it's still that. something we enjoy. Like, we love the adventures, being in some random town in the middle of South Dakota and yeah. having a great meal. You know, like, yeah. things like this kind of... We have trips on the way. Yeah. We, we travel by car now, which is a pleasure. No more airports. Mostly. Car? We're not yeah. going to travel yeah. by a car to New Zealand. No, we have to fly to <laughs> Well, yeah. not, not, you'll have to invent that car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but more air in the tires. Yeah, Can I just, like, wrap this up by making a quick plug for... Oh yeah, I want to have tiny one more house? question before we run. Oh yeah, that's okay, the other thing yeah. we've been doing is and building a tiny away. house. Yeah. yeah, one of the Go things ahead. too that I noticed on your website recently is that you all are almost done building a tiny home. Mm -hmm. explain, explain that along with, it seems like the small footprint of what you all are creating, you know, to, to make your work and to, to, to spread it to the world. It's mm. like, you guys don't have this giant shop to make stuff. You've got right. it, what you need. Yeah, so and nothing more. that in kind of relation to where you are now with the tiny home. and Yeah, so to me, the tiny home is kind of the thing that brings all these aspects that we've been talking about together. Yeah, so it's a good thing yeah. to wrap up on is, um, one, where we're coming from as far as what we make and what it's about and the natural world and sustainability and trying to live in a way that... If everyone were living that way, hopefully we could actually like keep this planet for a while. Right, right. <laughs> Let, she, share she, it with other animals and beings. It's a tenuous rip we have right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's a huge part of it is not just like making work that tells that story, but also living a life that yeah. is that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and very so, admirable. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it feels really, really good. There's times when you're like doing your dishes in a bucket. And what are we doing? You, yeah, I mean, there's... We're actually loving it, but I can see how people would have a hard time making the transition. People are used to 3,000 square feet. Exactly, exactly. exactly. And but so we're a, sort of like the anti that, that. And so that's the other part of it is that's part of the work-life balance is our goal is to be um, 
independent from a mortgage or something like this where you would have to have this day Gosh. job because you're paying a thousand dollars a week yeah. or I mean a month in rent a week maybe here in Asheville now yeah. <laughs> in yeah. rent or a mortgage and so you don't have the freedom to just be what we are which is two working artists I mean that's kind of insane in a way I mean you mm. probably have that a little bit we, with Carrie yeah, um, we've got that, we've, yeah, yeah but the that struggle and you guys are making such wonderful moves well, that's that. that's that's like, the goal yeah. is to have a little bit more yeah. time on the ground. We want to get land and bring a lot of these ideas yeah, that we have. Yet. Yeah, <laughs> we've got the house, One not the land. We did a backwards. Yeah. <laughs> the, house the house, well, on it's skids. not on wheels, but it can be moved with a trailer. Yeah. So. so we built it on three 24 foot long six by six beams mm -hmm. so that it can be winched up onto a low loader and moved. We right. had the money to build the house, but we didn't have money to buy the land and we needed a roof. Yeah. over our heads. Yeah. When we came here, we came kind of with nothing. We'd both given up our entire lives to be with each other. Yeah. So it's been an interesting, this is a huge step for us to actually have our own roof over our heads. Yeah. That's yeah. the only time we've That's had that in our entire knowing cases, of each other. Mainly tools. Yeah. Um, and so it's a small roof, but it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing. And we were lucky when we landed here that some clients at Grovewood that knew Mel well and supported her mm -hmm. gave us their house to live in for the first few years we were here wow. we, we that was amazing we, we did but we that's did the great. caretaking on it it's, yeah. it's a yeah. it's one of these mcmansions up on town mountain yeah, yeah. um uh, the amount of time maintaining it you know tiny house now half an hour you're done and you're out the door and yeah. back at work wow. and the other thing that i think it embodies for us is that idea of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. We made it with the best possible yeah. materials. <laughs> we made it with our own hands. We made it as a collaboration yeah. with, with lots of feedback. And yeah. we used <laughs> sustainable materials, wool insulation, yeah. um, rot resistant um, timbers for the wow. cladding and stuff so that you So it's kind of the combination. You know, Non-toxic materials all around. What's your consulting fee? <laughs> <laughs> we will talk to you about anything that we've learned. I don't yeah. know yeah. how no, much I'm it not, is. Not, not, yeah. No, no, no that's, fee. Well, go on. And, no, and I was it. just going to say, I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I think we just have to wrap this up. Yeah. I mean, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Likewise. I have to Thanks thank you too for chatting. participating in the inaugural expedition of Why Make to Asheville. Let us and know. talking to the, all good. the wonderful artists we did today. You wanted to make a shameless plug, please. No, that was my shameless plug, was the tiny house. Oh, yeah. this tiny house. Everybody shameless. move out of your big oh, houses. I knew it. Yes. Mortgage. So, tiny uh, house living. <laughs> so we're going to sign out of here. Save Why the make? world. Why make? <laughs> Thank you Cheers. very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it.